Welcome back. It's great to see you all in person. Um, I'm Adam Scherer, Vice President for Collections and Exhibitions here at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, and we're so pleased that you are here in person for our first banner lecture back on site. Um, pardon our dust. Uh, I hope everybody got here safely and without too much fuss. Uh, I know that it's been challenging uh, over the last six months or so, but um, if you haven't had a chance uh, to go up to see the galleries, uh, to walk around outside a little bit, uh, please do so after the talk. Uh, I think you'll be amazed at the progress. Uh, and we've just begun, um, you know, this time next year, this place will really be humming with a completely new vision, uh, new exhibitions, uh, new public spaces, a brand new library. Uh, it's really something to behold. So we are so grateful to you, our members, for helping to make this possible. Uh, and um, we just, uh, we're extremely grateful to you. So thank you all very much. Um, so despite the fact that we're in the midst of construction, we have an awful lot going on here. And uh, I want to uh, update you on some programs that are forthcoming so you can mark those on your calendar. Um, on the 21st of July, we will have the Hazel and Fulton Chauncey Lecture. Uh, that's at 5.30. Uh, historian Jack Davis, who probably most of you know, uh, is renowned um, for his Civil War uh, anthologies. Uh, but uh, that evening, he'll be talking about a different conflict. Uh, his talk will be The Greatest Fury, The Battle of New Orleans, and The Rebirth of America. On August 4th at 11 a.m., and that's a time change uh, for this program, we'll have uh, the next installment of our uh, Between the Lines book club. Uh, and this will be really special. Um, this is actually going to be a workshop on mystery writing. So you'll be able to work with our education team as well as an author, Stephen K. Smith. Uh, it will be a virtual program, so you'll need to sign up in advance. It'll be done through Zoom. But you'll, you'll get uh, experience in learning how to actually craft a mystery story. Um, and I think the really exciting part of this is that uh, you'll work together to create uh, a mystery story that's tied to something in our museum collection. So that'll be a special activity. Uh, Saturday, August 7th, uh, back by popular demand, we will have brouhaha uh, in full force. That will start at 6 p.m. Uh, and that, of course, will come with live music and food trucks. On August 9th at 10 a.m., our Curator Conversations uh, program will continue with uh, Who's in Your Locket? The Social Symbolism of Miniature Portraits. Uh, and that talk will be given by uh, VMHC Curator Dr. Karen Sherry, who will talk about the miniatures in our collection uh, and have a number of those uh, to show you. Um, and then our next banner lecture will be on August 19th at noon, uh, when we'll have uh, historian John Reeves here uh, to talk about his book, A Fire in the Wilderness, uh, which will talk about uh, the first clash between General Ulysses Grant and Robert E. Lee in the wilderness 
1864. But today we're very happy to have Carolyn Eastman with us. Um, Carolyn is an associate professor of history at Virginia Commonwealth University. She's a distinguished lecturer for the Organization of American Historians as well. She specializes in early America with an interest in 18th and 19th century histories of political culture, the media, and gender. She is award-winning author of prize-winning book, A Nation of Speechifiers, Making an American Public After the Revolution. Her talk today is about her most recent book, The Strange Genius of Mr. O, The World of the United States' First Forgotten Celebrity. This is a story probably many people aren't very familiar with, uh, I think, uh, about James Ogilvie, who arrived in Virginia in 1793, uh, a deeply ambitious fellow, uh, but impoverished teacher, some of, most, of Virginia's most important boys, including Thomas Jefferson's grandson. By the time he returned to Scotland and England in 1817, he had become a bona fide celebrity known as Mr. O, counting the nation's leading political figures and intellectuals amongst his admirers. Ogilvie's career featured some of the hallmarks of celebrity we recognize from later eras, glamorous friends, eccentric clothing, scandalous religious views, narcissism, and even an alarming drug habit. Sounds like he should have a miniseries. Yet he captured audiences with his eloquence, and inaugurated a golden age of American oratory. Examining his roller coaster career and the Americans who admired or hated him, this story illuminates the United States in the midst of its invention. Please welcome Carolyn Eastman. Thank you so much for coming today. And I especially want to thank Paige Newman and Graham Dozier for putting this together. This is my first uh, real public in-person talk other than Zoom events. And I'm just so glad to see real people in front of me instead of a weird reflection of myself, which is appalling. Um, so I want you to imagine Richmond about 200 years ago. Um, the city had about 11,000 residents in it, and at the time was the 12th largest city in the United States. It was growing rapidly, but um, you know it had only been declared the capital of the state in 1780, and so it was still really a bit of a boomtown, and it, the growth was irregular. Um, and in fact, it's easier to see it, I think, than to imagine it. So this is an image from about the time that Ogilvy was a teacher here. And you can see this is downriver a bit looking toward the Capitol. So the, the Capitol building is the, the central thing you see in the landscape. And looking at it from the other direction, from across the river, again, there are a few stuttering buildings around the Capitol building, but still the Capitol is the distinctive thing you see there. Um, and what these images I think reveal Here's a, um, a, a map of the existing buildings downtown, sort of surrounding the Capitol building. And you can see there are 
few and far between for the most part. Um, what it reveals is that Richmond was still in the process of being invented. They were still figuring out what this city would look like. It was messy, it was incomplete. And in fact, city leaders were still trying to figure out what kinds of laws to pass to maintain public order and so on. And because it was the capital of the state, people argued about everything. The, you know, there were fierce debates between the Federalists and the Republicans, the two political parties of the day, the newspapers, all of which were associated with one or the other of the two political parties fought with each other, accusing each other of all kinds of things. There were conflicts over religion, race, society, culture, and everything in between. And it wasn't just limited to Richmond. I mean, these were these were debates that that filtered throughout the country. Um, divisions over politics, uh, region between urban and rural areas. Leaders at the time in you know the early 19th century really worried about whether the United States could continue to exist with the kinds of divisions that that racked the country. And it was in, within this environment that a celebrity appeared on the horizon. This is um, James Ogilvy. He had immigrated to the United States from Scotland in, as a 20 year old in 1793. He had taught in Virginia schools for 15 years after that. And he ultimately abandoned the schoolroom in 1808 partly because he was burned out and who can't sympathize with that. Um, but he did it in order to become an itinerant public speaker, which was, I think, a decision that even his friends at the time thought was deranged. Um, no one could have been more surprised by his success than his friends, in fact. With, but yet within a year, he had become a celebrity, he had become a household name and newspapers were beginning to report on his success in those terms. He had, you know, as, as the uh, introduction indicated, he had all of these hallmarks of celebrity that we have come to recognize as par for the course, you know, the, the drug habit, the weird clothes, the narcissism. And yet he also, oh, and let me say also, he claimed to be the heir to an earldom in Scotland and everyone believed it, you know, it's, it's a really interesting story. Um, and yet these were not just gullible early Americans who, who went along with the Ogilvy show. His friends and confidants and supporters included Thomas Jefferson, Washington Irving, the novelist, John Quincy Adams, Benjamin Rush, the famous doctor in Philadelphia, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and a whole host of very important elite women who boosted his career and fought back against naysayers. And I think the reason he became a celebrity really had to do with his explosive and dynamic performances on stage. Um, he, uh, he would give a series of talks whenever he came to a different town, a series of talks for which he sold tickets. He, they covered topics like gambling, um, female education, the problem of suicide, the problem of dueling in the United States, 
all of these issues might sound a little random to us, but at the time, each one pinpointed a kind of an aspect of civic society that people were concerned about. People were concerned that that gambling might be helping to destroy the United States or that dueling, I mean, remember, Alexander Ham Hamilton had just been killed in a duel not too long er uh, before. All of these things were points of concern. And what he did then was on stage, talk about those issues from every side that he could imagine. He would enact a kind of thinking through of what those problems entailed and what possible solutions might exist. And so in other words, when he got up on stage, he, he enacted the role of a smart person carefully and methodically thinking through the ramifications of those social problems and pos possible solutions. And uh, so, I mean, if you imagine, again, being in Richmond 200 years ago, sitting in a space with a bunch of other Richmonders, likely with whom you disagreed, you could nevertheless sit and listen to one of his performances and think together through those, those aspects of, of public culture that seemed to be dividing the country. It was an act of coming together and an act of community building that really helped to give people a sense of what the United States could be if only it could get itself together. Um, and so I think that, um, that, you know, of course, Ogilvy began this, this strange career of public speaking, believing that he was performing a public good. But ultimately, he also came to argue that, that public speech itself, that oratory itself, because of the way it brought people together, because of the way that it helped to articulate both problems and solutions, that oratory could become a form of communication in the new United States that could help secure its Republican legacy. It could, it, it could ensure its claim to be a solid Republic along the same lines as the classical Greek or Roman Republics. And, you know, it, he wanted to sustain the American public and, and really give firm footing to democracy. So, so my book is really about Ogilvy's career as well as his eccentricities, but it's also about the American women and men who flocked to him and to, who saw in his performances a kind of answer to a public need that they had somehow inchoately felt before. And I realized that in talking about him as a celebrity, I may already have some of you um, scratching your head and, and actually maybe just being outright skeptical of our own celebrity culture. I mean, you know, the last thing any of us wants to do is argue about the Kardashians. But, but here's the thing. I think that in looking at this book and thinking about Ogilvy's career 200 years ago, I began to see that celebrity is a real mirror onto us. It's a mirror onto the culture that creates those kinds of celebrities. So if I love Kim Kardashian and you hate her, that can tell us a lot, right? It can tell us who you, who you think I am, who I think I am, um, or 
maybe who I want to be, the kinds of things I admire, the kinds of things I respect. So looking at the people like Ogilvy celebrated in the past um, tells us a lot about who ordinary people thought they ought to acclaim, who they ought to find talented, fashionable, beautiful, intelligent, who they ought to admire. So it tells us a lot about the early 19th century United States in this moment of invention. And I think that, you know, Ogilvy was celebrated because audiences believed that he gave them something that they needed. Um, he offered a glimpse of how uh, an intelligent and thoughtful and careful American public who thought deeply and, you know, with, with, with great consideration about the most important issues before it could sort of solidify the American public. Of course, Americans loved him. Um, it's also worth noting that um, they loved him even though on first glimpse, he didn't give the greatest first impression. Um, so let me just read you this. This is um, a description of him from a, a, a North Carolina newspaper. He's tall, lean, and badly formed. His cheekbones high and prominent, his shoulders narrow and round. Indeed, his whole figure is rather ungraceful. But when he speaks to you, you forget his personal defects. His eye, which is bright and quick, bespeaks the energy of his mind. It is the orator then only that claims your attention and lead, leads captive your every feeling. And I think that that description, the notion of people at first seeing him and thinking he looked pretty unlikely and then being bowled over by his presence and his energy and his dynamism on stage can tell you a lot about the kind of effect of his of his personal performances. And in fact, um, Washington Irving had a very similar description of him. Irving wrote, he was a pale, melancholy looking man with a meager, pallid countenance and an awkward and embarrassed manner. But when he spoke, the change in the whole man was wonderful. His form would acquire a dignity and grace. His long pale visage would flash with a hectic glow. His eyes would beam with intense speculation and there would be pathetic tones and deep modulations in his voice that delighted the ear and spoke to the heart. Um, so, I mean, who wouldn't want to start out with low expectations and only have them rise, right? Um, but and I think that these kinds of descriptions can can convey to some extent the, the truly ecstatic responses that people would have in the end after one of his performances. Now, I wanted to specifically talk about two elements of his performance that I think from our perspective look a little strange. Um, especially to those of us in the 21st century who are used to amplification and beautiful rooms like this with great acoustics. And the first was that to be truly eloquent at the time in the early 19th century required learning an elaborate and detailed set of postures and gestures and facial expressions and vocal modulations, um, all of which were supposed to, um, together with what you were saying, convey the meaning and the emotional punch of your talk. So 
what I did in order to recover this, because certainly people talked about how athletic and energetic he was on stage moving around. I can't move around because then I lose my mic. Um, but I, I wound up combing through a number of guides to public speaking from the time and found this sort of wonderful and very strange world of postures and gestures. Oh, I skipped that one. Um, so this is all from a book published in 1806 that offers a really detailed guide to reciting a particular popular poem of the day. Um, and every single um, different posture that you see here, the man moving his arms and so on, has usually just a single line from the poem underneath. And so with every single line, the, um, the person reciting it would be moving around the stage. Um, so how to modulate your voice, how to hold your hands specifically, how, on which foot do you put your body weight? Um, you, you know, I, I have to say that today, American, if you look at Americans' top fears, public speaking, is number one, you know? I mean, public speaking beats out spiders and heights. Um, not to mention, I mean, death, death is like the no number seven, right? On the list of Americans' fears. And I look at these guidebooks and I think, well, no wonder we're afraid of public speaking. They're so detailed. Um, and in fact, if you look at this, um, well, I hope you can see my little arrows there. So. You can see that below the figure are lines from the poem, but then in very small type, right above and below the lines are all kinds of codes, you know, um, I don't know, a D, A, C, and all of those refer to parts of the book that give you instructions on, again, how to hold your hands and move your face and modulate your voice and so on. And Again, I mean, just to recite a single poem required this enormous investment of practice and going over and over every different aspect of your physical performance. And I think you might already be thinking that this looks so theatrical. It looks so false um, somehow. But I want you again to imagine being in a room that didn't have comfortable upholstered seats, where you were probably sitting on benches. Also, the room surely did not have a nice incline here so that everyone could see properly. And so probably the people in the very back of the room couldn't hear everything being said. But if they could watch a person on stage, enacting these sort of emotional uh, sort of postures. Whenever they spoke of God, they would put a hand on their chest and lift their hand up to the sky. Or whenever they spoke about something evoking disgust, they might put their hands forward and um, cast their head aside in a dramatic enactment of the emotion disgust. Uh, all of those things help to bring a poem or a speech or a sermon alive. Guidebooks like these were in fact designed not just for actors on stage, but also for ministers, for lawyers, for orators and so on. And so in looking at this, what I did in collaboration with some of my colleagues at, at VCU was we created 
a kind of a flip book video that intends to put together the enactment of this poem um, with the different figures moving as you go through. And so before I play it, I just want to tell you about the poem I'm about to, to show you. Um, the poem is called The Miser and Plutus. It's a poem that very few of us know today, but in the early 19th century was very popular. Audiences surely would have known this poem. It was the kind of poem that children might have recited in schools. And so the, it describes a miser who is selfishly hoarding his gold. He's a miserable but very wealthy man um, and he's sort of hiding at home with the fear that people will try to come steal his gold. And then, so, I mean, the poem is really painting a quite vivid picture of this miserable man. Um, but then the god Plutus arrives and really accuses him of, of selfishness and reminds him with great power and effectiveness how much that money could matter to orphans and widows um, who are suffering otherwise. So I'm going to play the poem. The wind was high, the wind was high, the wind of shakes. the miser waves. Along the silent rooms he stalks, looks back, and trembles as a waltz. Each lock and every bolt he tries, every crank and corner cries. Then opens the chest of treasure story and stands in the rapture over his horn. But now the sudden qualms possess, he wrings his hands and beats his breast. By conscience stone he wildly stares, and thus his guilty soul declares. Sudden After stone, deep earth, the soul waits. is confined. Along the side of men, he speaks his mind. The virtuous soul regards what price to recompense the pains of vice. The bind of gold seduce a cheat, command weak man like hard defeat. Gold banished honor to the mind, and only left the name behind. Gold sold the world with every ill. Gold plucked the murderous soul right to kill. Because gold instructed coward's hearts in treacheries more pernicious arts. Who can account the mischief's awe? Virtue sides on earth no more. <laughs> so I think you can see there, it's it's a little bit hard for us at this remove to place ourselves into a world where that kind of performance moves us to tears. Uh, and it's partly because we live in a world, again, with, with microphones. You, you know, it's not as if I could... Uh, be up here yelling because you know we'd all be holding hands over our ears, but but that's what a person in the early 19th century would have been used to. Someone with real lungs who could try to reach the back uh, row, but knowing that some of us are hard of hearing, and so the enactment of this theatrical and highly emotional style of performance would allow everyone in the room to get something out of it. And I think that. One of the things I wanted to do with this book was to really try to bring alive this, this form of performance that mattered so much to people in the early 19th century. And then on through, I mean, you name it, you think about 
all of the great orators of the 19th century from Ralph Waldo Emerson to Frederick Douglass to Abraham Lincoln to Susan B. Anthony and on and on and on. Oratory was such a major form of performance at, during this period that I think it's important to see where it comes from and how much it relied on physicality. So a little bit maybe like now looking back at at silent film and the way that silent film can often be sort of a little bit overblown, you know, the people clutching their chest or, you know, um, the fainting and so on. Um, I think when you first see that kind of performance, it looks a little strange, but then the more you watch it, the more you get right into it. And I think that for me, the more I've studied this and tried to write about it in ways that speak to 21st century readers, the more I can see that this form of performance would have had real value at the time. Um, and, and that it would have been truly transfixing and remarkable so that when you see descriptions of Ogilvy in the most overblown terms, people talking about wiping tears from their faces or having goosebumps on their, on their arms, all of that seemed to evoke the kind of stunned um, sort of effectiveness of this style of performance at the time. Okay, so um, the second sort of strange looking aspect of um, Ogilvy's career that I wanna talk about um, that very much looks strange to us from our perspective is the mind blowing information that when Ogilvy appeared on stage, he wore a toga, <laughs> a toga. Um, I, I mean, you, you know, I hope I'm not the only one who, when I hear the word toga, I only think of John Belushi in Animal House. I only think of this drunken frat boy, you know, with his hairy chest and on and on and on. Um, it seemed so impossible that Ogilvy would be doing this and that he would not be roundly mocked for it. But that was the case. And in fact, it, it's not only that he wasn't made fun of um, by people who really were naysayers, um, even his fans didn't talk about it either. It was as if it was an aspect of his onstage persona that they just took for granted. Um, and But what they did when they talked about him in print was they would say something like, um, Mr. Ogilvy's performance gained immeasurably by his classical dress or something they would have this and then and then they would compare him to Cicero or they would compare him to Seneca or Demosthenes or one of the great orators of the classical world and and so of course you sit down you start to study togas in history and what i found was that togas were everywhere in early America, who would have thought? Um, and again, what I realized, again, coming from my John Belushi perspective, um, what I had to acknowledge was that togas had a very different meaning for early Americans. So if a sculptor was going to be creating a sculpture of George Washington or Benjamin Franklin, he would very likely put that man in a toga for this for the sculpture. Um, likewise, when they painted pictures of prominent 
public speakers, uh, Henry Clay or um, Daniel Webster, they would put them into togas. And, um, and I think that in part, this sprang out of a world of classically themed plays, uh, classically themed plays, I mean, like Julius Caesar to begin with, plays that very often talked about the 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 tensions over maintaining a virtuous republic in the classical world. So plays like this one, um, you know, were were really stories about noble men trying to preserve the solidity and and uh, safety of their nations. Um, and you can see that this looks very different than John Belushi. Um, for one thing, uh, there's no hairy chest that would not have been uh, kosher. Uh, instead, the man wears a tunic and then over that, the toga is very elegantly draped. Um, all of this would have been very carefully described in public speaking manuals of the time. Um, and I think that what the what the toga ultimately conveyed to Ogilvy's audiences was that he was a good man, that he was, um, a, and I emphasize man because the, the pictures of the day so often emphasize the, the manliness of these of these men as they very elegantly hold their toga with a fold just so. Um, and actors really loved to have their portraits painted when they performed in these classically themed plays. So this one in the play Cato, again, about the conflicts over, you know, maintaining good virtue in a republic. Um, you can see how, uh, in this case, John Kemble's forearm is really muscular. You know, it was a nice way to, to perform manliness with these. And so I think that what you start to see is that togas were hardly unusual, but they also conveyed all kinds of ideas about good Republican behavior, good um, manly behavior, and such that even this William and Mary graduate, Samuel Myers, had his own portrait painted in a toga in about 1810, the same time that Ogilvy was performing his lectures. Um, so, um, so in all of these ways, I think that um, there's a really interesting way that the, the book tries to unpack the meaning of early American culture at the time. I really wanted uh, this book, whoops, um, to, um, to convey an early America that would be surprising to us, but that would also teach us a lot about the fraught and divided culture that we live in now. And I especially wanted to do it because previously Ogilvy really has been forgotten for really the last 150 years or so. Um, the only uh, scholar to study him was a man named Richard Beale Davis, who about 80 years ago published a, a several articles about Ogilvy um, and he took a very bemused attitude toward Ogilvy. He said that, um, that Ogilvy was eccentric and egocentric to the point of ridiculous. Um, and he went on uh, you know, to really condemn Ogilvy's audiences for falling for it, for, for admiring this person whom they ought to have really mocked. And that kind of laughing at somebody in the, in the past, that, 
it really rubbed me the wrong way. I mean, as somebody who teaches students all the time how to think historically, this is the one thing that we try to teach from the very beginning, that, that you don't dismiss people in the past as stupid or weird or bad or misguided or, you know, wrong. What we want to do is try to understand people in the past. So, you know, once we start making fun of people in the past, it just shuts our minds down. I wanted to open up people's ideas about this period rather than stop us from asking questions. So I wanted what this uh, I wanted this book to really bring the world of the early United States alive for readers to show that Ogilvy's fans believed that he was offering them a glimpse of a nation that was really truly tied together, um, that worked together to resolve its problems. And I wanted the book to be full of surprises, you know, about togas and stage performance, as well as opium addiction and emotional instability and many other subjects because they open up again, new ways of thinking about the, the people who might otherwise seem strange to us. So, Ogilvy's story, his roller coaster career, and the Americans who followed him were all focused on this particular vision about the future of the United States, a, a United States that might survive the deep fragmentation of the early 19th century. And so I wanted readers to really see how much his story makes that uh, makes sense in the context of that United States. Um, and in the end, what I really wanted to do with this book was to illuminate a different period of deep division in the US, um, a period you know, before the advent of a full-blown celebrity culture where we have paparazzi and gossip magazines and so on, but it was nevertheless a period during which all kinds of Americans could meet in the middle and debate um, sometimes intensely, the 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 values or or problems of this one lightning rod of a celebrity. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carolyn. Um, so we're going to try to take some questions, both from the audience and from folks who are tuning in via our Facebook and YouTube pages. Um, folks who are tuning in virtually uh, can type in their questions, and I believe one of our staff are here to relay those. Uh, if you have a question in the audience here for Carolyn, uh, we have uh, folks with a mic. Uh, you can raise your hand. And, uh, and our staff will come over and uh, allow you to ask your question. Maggie's on her way. Yeah, and we do want people to speak into a mic because, of course, it allows all of us to hear uh, better. Who did it? Who did reminds you the most of James Ogilvy? Oh, that's a great question. It, well, it's a little tricky, isn't it? Because we um, we don't have somebody who sort of 
comes at the intersection of entertainment and education and sort of public mindedness, maybe quite as much as Ogilvy did. But I think about a few people, actually. I, I think about maybe someone like um, the performer Lin-Manuel Miranda, who's tried to bring American history alive with his Hamilton play. Um, and maybe somebody, maybe even like Oprah. I mean, somebody who has a really dynamic personality but can bring together, I mean, in her case, um, everything from uh, health education to um, ideas about self-care to ideas about sort of resolving other kinds of public issues. But there's also maybe Neil deGrasse Tyson who very popularly talks about science. And so, you know, it's, a, it's really hard to put my finger exactly on it. But you also think about TED Talks, people who, you know, in 10 minutes can get across in a dynamic fashion something that really teaches us something new. And so, yeah, it's it's not an easy thing to to characterize, uh, maybe in part because we don't quite live in a an oratorical culture as much as we did in the 19th century. Was Ogilvy still well known and well thought of when he passed away? He was. Um, yes, in fact, so the subtitle of the book is The World of the United States' First Forgotten Celebrity. And the story of his um, sort of roller coaster career is long and complicated. But um, the thing is, is that when he died, he still had a number of people who had been his students, who had been his fans, who had been his friends. And so there was an outpouring of attention. One of the things that that developed along the way during his career was that he he developed a number of imitators, people who delivered speeches on the same subjects, usually following him around. So he would perform in Richmond or Washington, D.C. And then a few weeks later, one of the imitators would come along and advertise talks on the same subjects, also wearing a toga. Um, but. But he had, in fact, burned some bridges by the time he left the United States. In, um, in 1817, he left the U.S. and tried to, um, to create the same kind of celebrity career in England and Scotland. Um, and when he left the U.S., he had um, uh, made his own narcissism very apparent <laughs> to people, I'll, I'll say. And, um, and so people by that time were wondering whether he had really deserved their adulation earlier on. There, there was a, a questioning of whether he really was as talented as Americans had thought he was. And so when he died several years later, um, he, there was an outpouring of attention and then an almost purposeful forgetting. I'm really struck by the extent to which he was forgotten, even by someone like Ralph Waldo Emerson, who in many ways led a very similar career. Emerson went on to become, you know, a star of the Lyceum. The Lyceum was exactly what Ogilvy had wanted when he was going around the country talking about the importance of oratory. And yet, um, as much as Emerson talked about the importance of 
eloquence and oratory in a republic, he never made reference again to Ogilvy. He was, he was, um, you know, I think within a generation, pretty roundly forgotten as Americans moved on, which is another aspect of celebrity, right? I mean, if you think back to maybe the movie star or rock star you loved as a 13 year old, by the time you were 22, you had moved on. And I think that many Americans felt that way about Ogilvy. Um, whether that was deserved is a larger question, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, an excellent question. Thank you. All right. And we do have a question from Kristen on Facebook. Um, she wanted to know if you could talk a little bit about his opium addiction. Um, which you alluded to. <laughs> <laughs> this was again, you know, so much of the book is taking things like the toga or this, this elaborate form of performance and unpacking it. And the opium addiction is one of those things. Uh, you know, we, of course, live in a culture that thinks we know what opium addiction looks like and what meaning it has in our culture. It was very different in the early 19th century. Um, for one thing, um, opium was not discussed as an addictive substance and neither was alcohol or tobacco or any other product. Um, but in fact, not only was it not discussed as addictive, people, you know, would um, even medical professionals might not have known that it was an addictive um, uh, substance. They also treated it as much as a, a stimulant, as a sedative. So, you know, its its primary purpose was to relieve pain. It, in fact, it was the only pain reliever of the day and was roundly celebrated as kind of a miracle drug for that reason. But uh, people might, you know, if you were going to a party, you might take a sip uh, of opium to put a little color on your cheeks or to make your conversation sparkle just a little bit more. Um, maybe a little bit like having a little glass of wine before going to a party. But what people especially loved about opium as it was in the day was that they believed that it gave you an incredible sense of intellectual clarity, that it gave you a kind of sense that all of your like maybe disjointed ideas could come together. And so in many ways, people like Ogilvy used it as a kind of a study drug, as much as a stimulant uh, to go to parties. Uh, famously, uh, surgeons in, you know, and this was printed in a number of volumes, surgeons would take a little opium before they performed any surgery of importance because they believed that it sort of clarified their minds. And so, you know, it, in all of these ways, opium just did not look like opium would a generation or more later. But even, you know, honestly, by the 1880s, you still had people like Oliver Wendell Holmes talking about opium as a miracle drug that should not be restricted or regulated in any possible way. This was an, a substance that you could get over the counter. It was cheap and people took it for all kinds of reasons, many of which had nothing to do with pain. And so I think that the, the story of opium in this time is so remarkably interesting. Um, and, and in some ways 
tragic from our perspective in that Ogilvy did develop a, a really almost unshakable habit. And so at key points in his life, he knew he had to get himself off of it. And that was a difficult process because even though the form of opium at the time, which again, you, you sort of um, took it and, and dropped it by droplets into a glass of wine and you would drink it, um, it was not the kind of smoking opium that you saw in the 1840s or and certainly wasn't an injectable form or even something that you ate in tablet form. It was all drunk. <laughs> um, so, um, so, you know, he knew that he had begun taking far too much of it that was making him unhealthy and that every time he tried to cut back, it made him feel even more pain than he, he had felt before. So, you know, again, opening up this world of the uses and understandings of opium in a culture that just didn't see it as an addictive substance is a really interesting story. Um, it's honestly one of my favorite chapters in the book. <laughs> and I mean, just to, just to really put my finger on how much Ogilvy openly talked about his problems with opium, how everyone did, I know more about his opium addiction than I do about his marriage. <laughs> so anyway. Can you speak a little bit about his women followers? Would we recognize any of their names? And were they educated or educators or wanting to be educated? Oh, that's an excellent question. The story of his um, female supporters that he very often, when he came to a new town, I mean, you have to imagine he was relatively unknown, especially in his early years. And so when he came to a new town, he would often have a packet of letters, letters from people like Thomas Jefferson, some of his Virginia friends, um, uh, John Quincy Adams, and he would knock on somebody's door and introduce himself, hand these letters of introduction over, and then hope that he got maybe an invitation to sit in the parlor with the family to uh, to stay for dinner. Uh, and it was that way that he began to sort of create social networks that really built his career, that, that helped him create supporters and boosters of his career. And women were a crucial part of that. He really believed that it he would never have succeeded without the attention and and approval of women, respectable women, usually matrons, so um, wealthy uh, married women who were intelligent and respected in their communities. And so in order to cultivate their support, he not only tried to tailor his lectures so that they appealed to both men and women, but he would also show up at a woman's parlor and sit and talk with her, maybe read some poetry, maybe talk about, so for example, there's one woman in Washington, DC, Margaret Bayard Smith, who is probably not known to most of us, but unless you study the history of early Washington, D.C., I guess. But yeah, she 
she very much loved op um, Ogilvy. I was going to say opium, um, maybe <laughs> opium too. Um, she she loved Ogilvy. Thought he was a very respectable man, and so he would he would show up in the afternoon while she and her sister and their daughters were maybe sewing. He would recite poetry by Byron or other prominent poets of the day, and they would make him cravats for his for his suits, and 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 then they would have a chat about Byron. I mean, maybe as some of you know, Byron had a scandalous life. You know, his sexual peccadilloes and and scandals, and you know he had led this life of a of a fiery and um, and opium sipping. Uh, romantic. Um, and so the Ogilvy could sit with these women and perform the role of the much more respectable man who, uh, you know, is someone who you can have in your parlor to talk about poetry, to talk about ideas. So um, we probably don't know the names of those women today so much. Um, he talked about them often in terms like, you know, these were my these are my best friends, but Ogilvy probably wasn't really their best friend. He was probably more like the, the deserving object of their beneficence, if that makes sense. He was probably um, somebody who, whose class status never quite rose to theirs, but he was nevertheless somebody who deserved their support, deserved their attention. And then, you know, when he left their parlors, they could sit down and write letters to everyone they knew, including in the next town where he was due to show up and give more lectures, expressing their approval and giving their friends and relations permission to attend his talks. And so it was a very effective way of, of Ogilvy building out his career and, and, and um, building out his social networks in a lot of ways. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, this is fascinating. As you predicted, I certainly had never heard of him. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your process as a historian? How did you, given all the many things you could be studying, you've devoted obviously an enormous amount of time to, to Mr. Ogilvy. How did you come to the decision that he was going to be your focus and um, how did you learn about him? Thank you. Um, I did not intend to write a book about him. I you know, had stumbled across his name when I was writing my first book um, because I had simply found so many letters and diaries talking about this guy, and I had read um, Richard Beale Davis's work, and I thought I knew the story. Um, and then, but then after the first book was published, I, I just decided to sort of go back and look and see what I could find about him. And and at first, I thought, well, maybe there's an article here I could write about this crazy traveling orator who just covered the country, you know, he ultimately visited 17 of the United States' 19 states at the time, as well as parts of lower Canada. You know, he went to Montreal and Quebec. He went to Scotland and England. Um, and But then I, I promised to deliver a a draft of this article that wound up being a hundred pages long. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I think there's a small book here and now it's a normal size book. So, um, so it was just one of those things where the more I researched this 
this story, the more I found and the more I started to see that there was a bigger story than just a kooky guy who traveled the country on a horse. It was a bigger story about the nature of the early United States and 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 really about the importance of history that we that we not see him or his fans as kooks or as misguided, but that opening up this world forces you to empathize with all of them, with Ogilvy himself, as well as with the Americans who loved him and hated him sometimes. Thank you. That's a great question. I was astonished when reading the book at how arduous it was for him to be a traveling orator and stunned, I think, at the fact that he even had to buy the candles for the, <laughs> for the lecture halls. Can you talk a little bit about what he had to go through in that time? Yeah. Well, you know, you think now about the way that, that, public talks and performances get scheduled and and you always assume that there's there's all kinds of shadowy behind the scenes people who are taking care of things but in Ogilvy's case he was it he was doing everything and with you know poor communication with poor transportation in the early united states he simply had to show up in a town and begin making arrangements at that point. So he would have to show up, figure out what kind of a tavern or ballroom he might be able to host, for have as his venue. He might have to find his own lodging. He would then have to trudge to the newspaper or if there were multiple newspapers in town to each one of them with advertisements. Sometimes he sold his own tickets. Um, and so in all of these ways, he was he was it. Even a generation later, they would have booking agencies who would set the rates for different public speakers and make sure that you know all of their travel arrangements were worked out. By then there were railroads, so you didn't have to you know, ride a horse from place to place. But yeah, it's it's an amazing picture of the early United States and just how primitive everything was and how difficult it was just to get anywhere. I mean, there's one person who talks about how how bad the roads were. You know, the roads were dirt. <laughs> they were full of rocks. They were full of logs. They were full of um, roots from trees. Very often they weren't much wider than what a, a cart could get across. And if you tried to take your horse any faster than a walk, you were likely to lose a wheel off your carriage or your cart. And so movement was just incredibly slow. Um, and, you know, people often talk about this period as a an age of a transportation revolution, but things were moving so much more slowly than that. And so when I think about Ogilvy simply getting on a horse and you know, in Columbia, South Carolina, and going all the way to Lexington, Kentucky, it would have taken him a couple of weeks. And, and he would have to very often knock on the door of a house along the way to ask for something to eat and a place to sleep. Um, so, so it's a, an amazing picture, I think, of a, a, a United States that's so much more primitive than we think of it today. Um, it's another thing that I, I loved finding. I, I just, I think 
the number of assumptions that you arrive with when you work on a project is remarkable. And I realized that my readers would have the same kinds of assumptions that I had. So thank you for that. I had some, a similar question into who, who came to his, his, oh, thank his you. speeches. And one of the advertisements said it was a dollar, which seems like a lot of money. It so was, yes. Did, were the women that he visited, were they helping him get people to come? Yes, yes. So the people who would have come to his talks would have been middling and wealthy people because you're right, a dollar was a lot of money. A dollar was as much as a laborer made in a day in, in this period. And so ordinary working people simply did not have the disposable income to come to his talks. Money? Like, like, yes. <laughs> yes, they were. They were the cut rate. His imitators were the cut rate version. So they only charge 50 cents. So yeah, that's right. But you know, 50 cents, I mean, it's really hard to, to find a current day equivalent. But you know, it was probably a, a dollar was probably something in the range of 20 to 25 dollars today or something or probably more i mean obviously a, a laborer makes more than that today i think it's the easiest thing is to compare it to a day's pay for a person making minimum wage um that's a lot of money it's it's a lot and so yeah his followers would have been middling and elite and and let's remember that he didn't talk about subjects that might have alienated those audiences right so he didn't talk about slavery for example and i think that's a really important thing to point out because when we think about the early 19th century you know 1808 1815 you think about that period as being one where the institution of slavery was really transforming in the United States that, that people may have wanted to talk about it, but Ogilvy determined for a variety of reasons that people would not have wanted to buy a ticket to that discussion. And we also have to remember that this was a period before the real flowering of an abolition movement, an abolition movement that really made the institution of slavery seem like an urgent crisis. Certainly there were people fighting against slavery. There are, there are some people sort of half-heartedly defending it or seeking maybe very gradual emancipation kinds of programs. Ogilvy was not really engaged in that discussion at all. He focused on other kinds of issues for which he knew he could sell tickets. So that was, that was his aim. For one more. I would hope that nowadays we had a little more humility as we look back at photographs of ourselves in the 70s. <laughs> and I, I guess in an age before there were photographs, people perhaps didn't make that connection and um, saw people wearing togas as something perfectly all right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And I think that, again, when we think about the early, the founding era of the United States, this was a period in which the American public and its leaders were consumed with classicism. You know, they, when you went to school, you studied the classical greats. When you 
were creating a national seal for the United States. You had Latin written on it. You imagined in creating this this republic that it would be based on some of the best values that you drew on from the classical world. And so it's not a surprise, I think, on reflection that that the toga would also have been imported and that it wouldn't have been an object of fun for people who saw it. And, and plus, you know, in fact, that chapter, the chapter on togas and um, what they conveyed in this period is the most richly illustrated because I just found so many statues of George Washington in togas, um, statues of Ben Franklin in togas. And, and then of course, the kinds of theatrical prints that I showed you, um, togas were everywhere. And, and, you know, I just keep wondering if, if Ogilvy, this skinny, emaciated, drug-addicted, man, melancholy man was in a toga. Um, what, did he cover up his legs? I mean, I'm just, I just keep thinking he would have had these skinny little stick legs. And what did he, you know, did he wear shoes? Did, uh, I, I don't know. It's, it's one of those, it's one of those questions that I just continue to come back to. And I wish, Again, I could have been a fly on the wall for one of his performances, so I could have seen what this meant for people. But yeah, togas, who knew? <laughs> um, oh, I think do, that's it. Oh, we do have a statue of George Washington in a toga upstairs in Story of Virginia, if anyone is curious um, to look at his legs. <laughs> so we'll leave you with that stimulating visual. Thank you all to uh, folks here in uh, in person and virtually for attending. Uh, I think Carolyn's going to stay for a few minutes and sign books in the lobby. So uh, thank you again, and uh, we'll see you in a few minutes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.